0: Well, last week we saw the Apostle Paul's first recorded sermon, first public sermon that we have. It was preached in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. Remember, there's two Antiochs. There's an Antioch in Syria. There's an Antioch in what is today Turkey. This is the Turkish one, Pisidian Antioch. And the themes of the sermon hit basically the same themes that Peter's preaching has hit in the first half of the book of Acts, the promises of a Davidic king the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus, especially in the risen Jesus. And the proclamation that through this risen one, forgiveness of sins and justification come. That is the gospel. And then Paul closed, you may recall, with a warning to these Jews saying, don't scoff. Don't scoff at the astonishing work, the staggering work that God is doing in your days through this risen and incorruptible one. And that brings us to our text this morning, which was the New Testament lesson from Acts 13. And in this text, what we're we're looking at is the reaction to Paul's first sermon. Last week was the first sermon. This week is the reaction. So we'll make three points. They're there on your bulletin, page 5. The Jews, Gentiles, and expulsion. First, then the Jews. And here we mean the Jews and what our text calls devout converts to Judaism, attached to the synagogue, proselytes, right? attached to the synagogue at Antioch. As Paul and Barnabas went out, that is, as they left the synagogue after Paul's sermon, the people begged, the text says, they begged that these things would be told to them on the next Sabbath. So you can see, you have an immediate reaction, which is quite favorable. There's a begging to hear more of this from Paul next week. It's like Paul is standing in the back over there, and folks are shaking his hand on the way out, saying, please, please, uh, preach that same sermon for us next week. We beg you. That happens to me sometimes. (laughs) Then I usually wake up <laughs> in any event, right? In any event here, there's this hunger they have for this word, right? And remember, this is a word that Paul's preaching. They're not getting this every Sabbath day. This is disruptive to their whole system. And they're open to it. And this, this, is, a, this is an important thing, right? That if we're open to the word, we're not locked up in our own little universe, right? We are, we are letting it correct us, letting it disturb us, letting it restructure us. We're willing to put our whole system like these Jews are out on the table and let the word shatter it if it has to, right? We're really not interested at the end of the day of being right. We're interested in the truth, right? And so they, they have this hunger for the word. And verse 43 tells us that after the meeting broke up, many It says, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism. So we're talking here about the most devout and Orthodox folks in the community. They followed Paul and Barnabas, who spoke to them. So it's almost like, you know, the sermon was extended into the parking lot. They they followed him when he left. They spoke to them, and here's what they said to them. They urged them to continue in the grace of God. So clearly these people had, in some genuine way, responded to the gospel from the mouth of Paul and Barnabas. They had begun, if you will, in the grace of God. And Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. So what a marvelous summary of the apostolic message this phrase is. The grace of God. Continue in God. The grace of God. Right? I hope that is what we are doing here. That we are speaking words that could be reduced to that to one another. Continue in the grace of God. We can't start in the grace of God. And at some point shift over to the law. Or start in the spirit and continue in the flesh. Continue in the grace of God. That is the apostolic advice given to these open and responsive Jews, continue in the grace. Now, I, th- I think this is very important for us and for our tradition. Right? We're in the Reformed tradition here, the Presbyterian tradition. We're confessional, if you will, Calvinists. We have the highest doctrine of grace, right, on the planet. Calvinists are always talking about the doctrines of grace. But here's the tragic mystery, Somehow, something in the water always produces, or often, not always, but often, occasionally, produces the most ungracious of people. Or graceless people. So that we end up defiling grace, which we purport to exalt by our gracelessness. It won't do for us in our tradition to have a high doctrine of grace. We have to be animated by grace. We have to have a DNA that's gracious. And this can't be faked. You can't fake it. I have a diagnostic test. I think some of you have heard it before. But if you were to ask the people closest to you, like your wife, your kids, your friends, and you were to give them a choice, they can only describe you with one of two words. One word is grace. The other word is law. What are they going to say? Which one? You know, law, principles, obedience, commandments, discipline, or grace? Nothing wrong with the law in its place. But the point is, you want grace to be the answer. That's the fragrance of the apostolic gospel. Continue in the grace of God. And, and by the grace of God, we mean God's saving action, his free favor to us in Jesus Christ. This little phrase, continuing the grace of God, is a marvelous little summary of the gospel. The gospel is grace from beginning to end. We're not asking people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, to try harder, to do better. Jesus did not go to the cross because we needed a little assistance. Grace draws us in. It's grace by which we're saved. It's grace in which we stand. It's grace which will lead us home. It's grace which transfigures our hearts. The law is wonderful, it cannot transform you. And it can't transform those you use it as a weapon on either. It can tell you what the standard is. And it's marvelous that way. It's holy. It's good. But grace transforms you. right? Grace seasons our speech. We begin by grace. We continue in grace. It's grace all the way down, all the way home. That's the accent that we want heard in the congregation. So... And this is a radical message in the history of the world, right? There are two kinds of piety or religion or spirituality in the world. One is you do some sort of works to help you get to whatever the goal is, the other is you're safe by the free grace of God, apart from works. So, word obviously got around about Paul and Barnabas in this astonishing message, right? Remember, grace is not just undeserved favor, it is that, but it's more than that, right? It's, it's demerited favor. Like you deserved judgment and you got grace. So this message gets around and there's a great deal of excitement and we're told that on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered. Right? And at this point, there'd be many Gentiles assembled here as well. And they gather, we're told, to hear the word of the Lord. Faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of God. And the synagogue service was ordered or centered on the hearing of the word. We seek to do something which imitates the ancient synagogue service here. It's a service of word and sacrament and prayer and singing. And here the whole city, Jew and Gentiles, gather to hear the word. But notice this. In verse 45, we're told there's rising opposition. When the Jews, presumably some of the leaders, saw the crowds... The text says they're filled with jealousy. Jealousy is a a common human failing, and religious leaders can succumb to it and often do succumb to it. Right? It sounds like this. The internal monologue sounds like this. We've been laboring in this region and building this synagogue and serving this congregation in the synagogue for years, and look at the crowds these upstart outsiders are drawing with their newfangled theology. And so they begin, the text says, to contradict Paul and to revile him. They're abusively opposing him. The word for reviling here means blaspheming, or probably means blaspheming. And so we have, in the midst of the good news, we have, as Jesus promised, division. Division caused by the word about him. In this sense, Jesus is the most polarizing figure there can be. Here, he said this. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So many devout Jews seem open and responsive. And yet there's clearly substantial opposition, hostility. The word saves, the word condemns. It divides, it differentiates. Now we like to clean the messiness of this up. Right, we think well if the word is prospering then all opposition must be on the run. Or if there's ferocious opposition the word must be being hindered. Neither one of these things are true. Like receptivity and reviling, right? Receptivity and ferocious opposition have always been the order of the day. Generally speaking, from the beginning And the opposition here is of such a tenacious quality that we get this momentous event of Paul and Barnabas saying, we're turning from you Jews and we're going to the Gentiles. And that brings me to the second point here, the Gentiles. So they speak out boldly. They say it was necessary for the word of God to come first to you. Notice, it's, it's a necessity. It's part of the divine order. It's part of the divine plan. The gospel is spoken first to Israel. Right? Redemptive historical priority, if you will, belongs to them. They're the first to be summoned to repentance. They're the first to hear the good news of forgiveness. But they have, and this is a tragic you know, outcome, they have thrust, Paul says here, they've thrust, Luke says, they thrust the word of God aside. In so doing, they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. That is, they condemn themselves. That's really um, sharp language. In other words, you cannot blame, you know, God is sovereign, God is the electing God, God decrees. You can't blame God if you reject the gospel. You rejected the gospel, that's because you thrust the word aside and you condemned yourself. You judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. And again, this eternal life is not a mere quantity, a life that lasts a long time. Right? The, the, the accent here on eternal life is it's a quality of life. It's the life of the resurrection, what we call eschatological life, the life of the age to come. It's the only kind of life there is in the Christian faith. That's it. That's all there is. That life. And to to know the triune God in Jesus Christ is to partake of that life. You know, already now, more fully later. And that life, eternal, immortal, indestructible life, that's what's rejected when one rejects the gospel. They judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. And so in the teeth of this rejection, Paul and Barnabas make this declaration, behold, we are turning to the gentiles. Now, a couple things here. This turning has to do with a basic emphasis. It's not an absolute turning. It's not as if the gospel will cease being preached to Jews and only go to gentiles. But it's a shift, right? It's a shift that Paul's ministry will now be primarily oriented to the Gentile world. And I want to say a couple things about this that we'll see later as Acts unfolds. The word Gentiles is sometimes translated nations, right? It's the word ethne, right? You can see we get ethnicities from it or ethnic from it, ethne. But, so again, sometimes it's translated nations, but it doesn't mean nation states. Right? We didn't even have nation states in the sense that we have them now to the 17th century. And it doesn't mean nations as geopolitical institutions, at least here. It simply means people or peoples, More specifically, it just means non-Jewish peoples. That's what Gentiles means, non-Jewish peoples. And so Paul's whole ministry tells you what turning to the Gentiles means. It means preaching to people from among the nations. I mean, after all, think of who Paul is here. He is the apostle to the nations. He's the tip of the spear, Paul is, of what all the prophets and all the Psalms mean when they speak of all the nations streaming into Zion and worshiping the Lord. How does that flesh itself out? Well, the answer is Paul. That's how it fleshes itself out. What Paul is doing is he's fulfilling this prophetic vision of the nations worshiping the Lord. And what he conceives of himself as doing is not like transforming the nation state or even Christianizing the world. Paul knows nothing about trying to create a Christian culture at Pisidian Antioch. The concepts would be foreign to him. What he is doing, though, is he's gathering elect Gentiles from among the nations into the holy nation of the body of Christ. Now, they'll impact the culture, to be sure. But J. Gresham Machen, the, the founder of Westminster Seminary, had this wonderful statement that I love. He said, Christianity often brings social change and transformation where it goes not always but it often does it may or it may not in any given case he says but when it is sought primarily because of its social and political outcomes that is idolatry like that is another religion right we seek christianity because we seek the glory of god regardless of the consequences or the benefits socio politically So Paul thinks of himself, he tells you what he's doing. Here's what he says in 2 Timothy 2. The apostle says this. I endure everything. But this is for the sake of. That's quite an intro, by the way, if you know what Paul suffered. Like you're waiting waiting with bated breath to see what he says. I endure everything for this. What? The elect. That that, what about the elect, Paul? That they might obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. That's what Paul thinks he's doing. He's bringing a great multitude of the elect from all the tribes and tongues and nations to everlasting, eternal glory. And by the way, that's what Jesus is doing. Hebrews chapter 2 says that the risen and exalted Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. Paul's doing what Jesus is doing. And we can see then what this turning to the Gentiles means more clearly in verse 47. Here he cites from Isaiah 49, which was our Old Testament lesson. It's quite remarkable what happens here. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth, Now, you you might remember Christmas is coming up soon. You might remember that Simeon cites this text, right? He alludes to it when he takes the infant. He's in the temple. He's ready to depart and die. And he takes the infant Christ in his arms and he says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So the servant, spoken of in Isaiah 49, is Christ Jesus, who first restores Israel and then gathers the nations. That's straightforward enough, but there's something remarkable here you should not miss. Paul and Barnabas, they see the servant as gathering the nations by means of their ministry. In other words, if you read this text carefully, they are applying the language of the Messiah to themselves. God has commanded us, he says. God has commanded us to be a light to the Gentiles and to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Think of that. You're part of that mission, the bringing of forgiveness and grace and justification and eternal life to the ends of the earth. The point is that the apostles and eventually the whole church are taken up into the work of the Messiah to bring the light of God's salvation to the ends of the earth. From Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, God gathers his people as Revelation 7 gives you that beautiful multicultural picture in heaven, right? Out of every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation. And so... We're told next, as you might expect, that the Gentiles are listening to this and they start rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then we get this. We get this crystal clear, predestinarian statement about these Gentiles. It says this As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is why I emphasize that Paul sees himself gathering the elect. As many as appointed themselves to eternal life, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It doesn't say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. It says the opposite. And notice this. As many means the exact number. As were appointed is a passive verb. They were appointed by God. As many as were appointed believed. And they were appointed because their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's as strong a statement on the, what our confessions call the high mystery of predestination as there is in the New Testament and Luke just drops it into the middle of his narrative without any angst whatsoever or without any explanation. So this, this confirms our earlier point that Paul is serving the decree of election in his ministry. Right? Jesus died for the elect. That's a simple reformed proposition. So what does it mean, then, to be a light to the nations, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth? Does it imply some millennial glory? Right? Does it make Paul a proto-culture warrior? No. Luke tells us plainly what it means. Paul's whole ministry tells you plainly what it means. It, and by the way, it's very important to see this, right? Paul's an apostle, and the apostles are the determinative, decisive interpreters of what the Psalms and prophets mean. So when you read the Psalms and you read the prophets, you might draw certain conclusions about Christianity and culture. But you must let the the apostles correct those. The apostles tell you what what the prophets are saying. And Paul says, what this means is I'm going about and I'm gathering elect Gentiles Gentiles in every city to which I'm sent into the church through the gospel. And the word of the Lord then is spreading through the whole region. The word is having success. And that brings me to the final point, which we sort of don't expect, but maybe we do. Expulsion. Verse 50. The Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading men of the city. And it says they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and then they drove them. This is a violent action. They expelled them from the district. Right? This is a foretaste of a 2,000-year history where the elites and the rich and the powerful, not always, not all of them, but often, and many of them, hate the faith. Right? Well, what does James say? It is, is it not the rich that drag you into court? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1? Among the Christians, he says, there are not many rich, there are not many noble, there are not many well-born. God has chosen the things that are not to shame the things that are. So the success of the word, the spreading of the word, does not eliminate persecution. It often, as here, heightens it. Right? It often heightens it. You know where you can see this vividly? I love this particular example. And John, the writer of the book of Revelation, he introduces himself in chapter 1. Just You can take a look at this at your leisure, but if you look at Revelation 1, John says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I, John, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God. The kingdom for John just comes with tribulation. They're inseparable. They're both given in Jesus. In Jesus, you are a possessor of the kingdom. In Jesus, you have tribulation. Therefore, in Jesus, you need patient endurance. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus produced exile for John the apostle, and it produced expulsion for Paul and Barnabas. And in verse 51, they shake the dust off their feet against them. Now, this started off as a very successful sermon with a very healthy afterlife in the parking lot. But it ends with a violent expulsion from the town. This is a public sign of judgment. Jesus, we read it in the gospel lesson from Luke 10, he teaches the disciples to do this as a testimony. Right, again, whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet. We wipe off against you. So the word. The word was triumphant in saving the elect. And it will prevail in judgment over those who reject it. Both are present here in full measure. I wish we could tell a cleaner story than that. Or a neater story than that. But that has been the story. Almost everywhere. The word will gather the sheep. Of God from all the nations, and it will stand as a witness against the nations in the day of judgment. And then you get this, again, intriguing and again, counterintuitive closure, closing remark in this text. The disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. We saw earlier they counted it a great honor when they were persecuted. Mart- the, the, being let out to be martyred in the Colosseum was their triumph day. This produced joy. The church rejoices both in persecution, in expulsion, and in the spreading of the word throughout the region. It's a remarkable text. You, if you're not Jewish, and you have saving faith, you're here this morning because the servant's mission... The mission of the servant has brought light and salvation to you at the ends of the earth, far away in space and far away in time from the prophets and the apostles. And if you embrace that apostolic gospel, here's the offense of Calvinism, but it's right on the face of the text, beloved. It's because you were appointed to eternal life by the sovereign predestinating God. And what's your calling then? Your calling is the same calling that Paul and Barnabas had. You're called to bring light to the Gentiles and to be an instrument of salvation to the ends of the earth. So you join the mission of the servant then. You spread abroad his light. You tell the good news of salvation. The elect of God will be gathered in. Others will hate you. In either case, you're to be filled with the joy of the Spirit. Continue then. Continue in the grace of this God. Amen.